So I will be the policy director for the Urban League of Portland. And, you know, we work on civil rights issues for folks of color with a particular emphasis on the African-American community. My heart is singing at the prospect of doing mission-driven work that feels really important, especially right now. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. What happens when you have a job that seems prestigious? Most people love to have it but you can't stand it. The work culture was pretty toxic. I didn't feel good about the work. So my first best day was the day that I decided I needed to leave that job. That's Jackie Yerby. She is what the kids today would call a boss. She's had a series of very prestigious, high-impact roles in public policy, although not all of them are fulfilling. And this is a fascinating aspect of career change in itself. We have shared a lot on the podcast about looking past what other people do to change careers or what other people think is fulfilling and trying to identify what you want and what you find fulfilling, even if it makes other people say, really, are you sure? Well, it turns out that Jackie's career brought her into some high-powered circles of people who had very specific ideas about what it meant to be successful. And Jackie felt like she had to meet their standard. Keep a ear open during this episode for Jackie's explanation of how she escaped other people's expectations and focused on what actually made her feel fulfilled. Here she is explaining where her career began. So I have a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and I studied healthcare policy to the extent that there are minors. My kind of minor concentration was in international affairs and security, but I knew that I really wanted to focus on domestic policy. And I went to grad school in the nineties. And so that was when Hillary Clinton was working on healthcare reform. And I've always really been concerned about the lack of access to healthcare, especially for folks who have been marginalized, which includes lots of communities of color. So that's been something I've always really cared about. Even though I, you know, I, I, tr- I tried to do other things, but I kept being pulled back to healthcare policy. And as you can imagine, I mean, even in the 90s, going to grad school is expensive. And you know, even with scholarships, I took out a lot of loans. And so when the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association said, hey, we want to interview you, and I'll just pause and say, like, you know, they posted in our career center. I looked at the job posting and I'm like, no, no way. Like, <laughs> that's not me or I'm not qualified to do that. And they said, no, we actually want to talk to you. Um, And so I was, you know, flattered. Um, So I went to that on-campus interview, and then they invited me to Chicago to interview. And several folks within that organization had actually gone to the Kennedy School, so I didn't have to explain my degree to them. And we hit it off, and it was amazing. And then it ended up being a horrible experience. In what way? The work culture was pretty toxic. And it was the kind of thing where I did form friendships within my department, but it was kind of like in spite of all the energies trying to keep us apart, 
Um, and, and I remember I had this, um, one really good friend who, um, we would have lunch together on a regular basis. Yeah. It was like we were speaking out, you know, we were like, would meet by the elevator or meet downstairs. <laughs> you would think that we were conducting like a clandestine affair because like, we didn't want the boss to know that we were becoming such good friends. Cause we might be talking about them, you know? Oh no. And I would say my first best day. Oh, well, let me just say too, I didn't feel good about the work. I didn't feel like I could stand behind the work. What was the work at that time? Yeah. And you know, it was a consulting type work and I didn't feel good about what we were selling. I also wasn't forming deep connections in Chicago. And like for the 14 months that I lived there, I didn't spend a single three day weekend there. Um, And at that point I had the ability to just kind of like hop on a plane at a moment's notice. And you used to be able to do that. And so I would, fly to Washington, D.C., where most of my friends were, or I would fly to New York, where my sister and brother-in-law lived. And every time I went to D.C., and I also traveled to D.C. once a month on business, I always felt like I was flying back into my life. And so really strong cues. So my first best day was the day that I decided I needed to leave that job. And that was about seven months in. And it was like this huge weight was taken off my shoulders. So then I started looking for a job in Washington, D.C. And so this is 1995. There's no internet. There are no cell phones. This is back in the day when a friend of mine, friend of a friend who, who since became my friend, had two Rolodexes. And I sat in her office in D.C. and she went through her Rolodexes and she said, get in touch with these people. Use my name. And then I wrote them letters that I had printed on that really nice paper that you used to buy. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mailed them. And then, you know, then I called them on my landline to make appointments. And then I set up all these appointments and then I took time off of work. I don't forget what I said I was doing. It really did feel clandestine meetings in Chicago because there was the possibility that I actually might see my boss in Washington, D.C. But it was amazing, actually, how much being able to use my friend's name opened a lot of doors for me. And And this was my first experience with doing informational interviewing. And I was really struck by how generous people were were with their time, even in Washington, D.C. Through that experience of networking, looking for a job, I actually interviewed for a job as a legislative assistant to then um, Connecticut Senator Joseph Lieberman, and I was one of the finalists. And they hired somebody who had so much more experience than me, so that's fine. But I'd asked a colleague at the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association if she would be a reference for me, and she was, um, a colleague based in D.C., And I didn't get that job. Um, But then she called me and she said, I have a job for you. Um, Do you want to come work for me? And the answer was absolutely yes. And so I ended up going to work for her. And it was night and day from my experience of having worked with the folks in Chicago, like the leadership in Chicago. The culture in one section was completely different than the other section. Different, And also, I mean, just, I felt like, the boss I had in DC was warm, comfortable in her own skin. But I remembered, like, my office was right next to hers. And had that been the case in Chicago, like, I, it just, it would have been untenable. Yeah. And my boss would say, hey, we haven't talked in a while. Let's go across the street and get coffee. And I would have this moment of like, <gasps> and I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is a different boss. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, dear Fla- boss flashbacks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, I felt like this kind of, you know, uh, like wounded puppy for a while. So I was in that job for four years 
uh, doing uh, legislative policy work focused on what was going on in the state legislatures. Got to travel around the country, got to meet lots of interesting people, but I got tired of living in Washington, D.C. And I also felt like I was plateauing and not that I have this like these huge aspirations to be important and famous and whatever. And I, I feel like on the East Coast where I spent a lot of time, like status counts for a lot. Um, and I remember watching TV. So I was 30. I remember watching TV on a Sunday, watching the Sunday news programs with the Washington Post spread around me. And George Stephanopoulos, who was 37 at the time, was on TV and he was counselor to the president. And I think it was Jamie Rubin was um, an advisor to Madeleine Albright, also 37. And I remember thinking, in seven years, is that what I'm going to be doing? I don't think so. Not unless my life takes a really different path. And I just, you know, like get turbocharged. But I was also like, that's not, I don't actually want that life. It felt like unless I go down that path, I'm not going to be seen as successful in this environment. Also, I'm originally from the West Coast. I'm originally from California. I live in Portland, Oregon now. Um, and I really missed trees. And it's not like I'm somebody who goes hiking and camping and, yeah. you know, all the time. But like when I worked in downtown Portland, I could look out my window and I could see three park lots in downtown that had Doug firs, you know? In Washington, D.C., there was Rock Creek Park, which I would occasionally ride my bike through on my way somewhere or walk with a friend. But as a woman, it didn't feel safe to be in that space by myself. And I remember also talking with friends like, hey, let's go camping this summer. And I think I did that for three summers in a row and we never went camping. I wanted to move to a place where like nature felt a lot more present and, and also where people valued things other than work. Um, and so back in 97, I just was starting to feel really bored in Washington, D.C. And also at that time, the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, and I actually, I felt bad for calling it the Monica Lewinsky scandal because she's actually turned into this really amazing and graceful person. But that was going on. The Bill Clinton scandal? The Clinton <laughs> scandal. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so the environment in D.C., just the atmosphere just felt particularly toxic. And I just thought I got to get out of here. So like I said, I'd been traveling a lot, had met a lot of people around the Blue Cross Blue Shield system and really hit it off with somebody who was the chief legal officer for the Blue Cross Blue Shield company in Oregon. And I was in Portland um, to do a presentation to the leadership team. Yeah. And he said, if you're ever interested in working here, let me know. And I was like, hey, and I really liked Portland from the times that I'd come to visit. And so um, so I, I followed up with a Christmas card with the like, hey, I'm actually kind of interested and got, a, you know, the like, let's talk. And then he called me, I think, in January and said, I have something that you might be interested in. And I perked up and I said, what is it? And he said, ethics and compliance officer. And I literally said, are you nuts? And the field was really new at the time. And my experience of interacting with the ethics and compliance officer at my company, um, who had was the chief auditor and became that, was, I mean, he didn't have great social skills. And so if I saw him, like I'd walk in the other direction and not that I had anything to hide. I just, he wasn't a comfortable person to talk to. Mark, the chief legal officer, and I kept talking and he explained his vision for the job and it, that it wasn't to be the cop 
sort of busting people for behaving badly, but it was to set a tone to help create an ethical culture within an organization. And the thing that I loved about it was that, that there was an opportunity to learn and grow on the job. Um, and I specifically asked, like, I've never done this and lots of people have never done this. So I have ideas, but you and other people I will be interviewing with can't ask me what I have done because I haven't. And um, it was kind of funny. I flew out to Portland for a day and a half of interviews. I was like, we need to have breakfast um, because I need to make sure that people understand again, like who I am and what my background is. And he's like, absolutely. Um, And I don't know that anybody else interviewed for the job. So, you know, so I had this like marathon day and a half of interviews um, and I got offered the job and they totally lived up to their commitment of letting me learn and grow on the job. That's awesome. Yeah. And I got to work with a great team of people, uh, the other ethics and compliance officers in the other states where this company uh, did business. So, um, so Idaho, Washington, sorry. Yeah. Idaho, Washington and Utah. Um, And it was the kind of thing where we didn't know each other before, um, but we just really clicked. And it was the kind of thing where the kind of work we were doing, it was really important that we trusted each other and and felt that we had each other's backs. And we did. Um, And we never became cynical about people, which is how I was able to do that job for 11 years um, through some pretty stressful times and some very um, stressful investigations. So then... That sounds great in terms of that lines up with so much more than some of the other pieces that we had talked about previously in terms of, Hey, it's a, it's a better location that matches up with what you really want. Different people that align with what you really want. Uh, a cause that in a lot of ways you could get behind that made sense at the time. So what, what ended up changing from that, that caused you to move on? So I, um, switched jobs within the company. Um, I became the sustainability program manager. And part of it was like our leadership changed. And I, um, I didn't so much care for that person, smartest guy in the room, uh, consistently mansplained. And, um, and, and also, I just felt right, like my team had changed. So I was ready to move on. And the CEO, um, who was the person who had originally recruited me to come work for the company. Um, he had gone from the chief legal officer to the CEO. He had created this position, the sustainability program uh, uh, manager position. Um, and I really care about sustainability. So this idea of, of triple bottom line, that it's not just about the environment, that it's also, you know, it has to make economic sense and it, and it has to be good for people. Um, and that just really resonated with me. So actually, I was the second person in that role. The first person um, it became a really good friend of mine, is still a good friend of mine. And, and it was an, a growth opportunity for him, um, but not a passion for him the way that it was for me. And, and he was just appointed to it. Um, and I remember being really disappointed about that, that I didn't get a chance to raise my hand. Yeah. Um, and so I reached out to him. And I said, congratulations, and you have to let me help you. Um, and so I did. And, and so I became part of his unofficial team. And when it came time for him to move into another role, 
I became the most obvious person to step in. I, I had to interview for that. I think there was maybe one other person. So I got the job. Let's go back to that, what you yeah. just said for just a moment. Because I think yeah. that that is, that is something that is not the first inclination for many people. But I think it's really important. And I, I just heard you say that, hey, like you saw this sort of situation that wasn't maybe it wasn't necessarily desirable because it sounds like you wanted to be able to raise your hand to be able to you know, have an opportunity at that role at least. And yeah. what has a tendency to happen for many people is they will just write it off as, uh, you know, it's I didn't have an opportunity. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just not going to worry about it. Or I didn't have an opportunity and I can't believe that guy got the job or, you know, any, any number of other things. Uh, other than what you did. And what you did was say, okay, I'm going to, I'm actually going to continue to be involved in this in a really positive and productive way. And then not so long afterwards, it created an opportunity for you. And that is, unfortunately, I think the polar opposite of what many people will do and what I've even done in the past in certain cases too. But what I found is that when you do exactly what you did, where you look at that potentially, you know, potentially not great situation and turn it into something that is really positive and productive and actually really legitimately helpful for everybody, then it almost always comes out so much better in ways that you can't yeah. anticipate. And yeah. so nicely done, first of all. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So I got that job. Yeah. Um, and then I realized how much harder it was than the job that I'd had, which was actually pretty hard. Careful what you wish for, I suppose, right? Yeah, totally. And, and my friend, Dan, who had had the job and then became my boss, told me that it was like uh, pushing rocks uphill, that um, if he moved the program an inch forward in a day, that that felt like success. I think him stepping into that job coincided with the start of the Great Recession. And so then it became about like, like waste, and, and kind of productivity and, um, you know, streamlining processes, which can certainly be a part of it, but that's not the heart of it. Yeah. And to me, it never felt like there was a heart or a vision behind it. And I tried to articulate one like, hey, let's get really involved around like childhood obesity. And here's how it affects the triple bottom line. You know, let's talk about how we're spending so much money on drugs for kids for type two diabetes that we wouldn't expect to see until decades later. And kids are really hard to treat because they're non-compliant, right? And then, you know, let's talk about food deserts and neighborhoods without sidewalks and parks and, and places for kids to like play in their own neighborhoods. And so there's no movement. Yeah. And so that, you know, there's the environment piece and, you know, and then the, the people piece about like, again, how it's impacting people. And I would tell that I would have, I would, kind of shop that around the organization and people would look at me like, wait, isn't this about recycling? And I'm like, oh, and I, I'm a master recycler. I actually really care. I'm a geek about this stuff, but I just felt like I couldn't get traction. And, and what I came to realize from talking to other, my peers at other organizations is that organizations that make things that have a tangible, um, you know, tangible inputs and tangible outputs, Re, like get sustainability a lot more because when you can use less material, less inputs, you are saving, you are obviously saving money and you can tell a great environmental story about it. But in a service company, it's harder for that to pencil out the kind of 
hearts and minds stuff, the, hey, this really matters to employees and let's talk about employee retention. It's not as pressing and in front of everybody in the same way, unless it is already deeply ingrained into all of the other leadership messages and all of the other elements. So totally, totally get that. What? So what was what was the breaking point that caused you to decide to move on? Well, I, I was laid off, um, which was actually fantastic. <laughs> it worked out perfectly. And I mean, obviously, it's a hard thing, um, but I was so ready to move on. So that was at the end of 2014. And in 2015, you know, I started looking and this is like I hadn't looked for a job in a long time, probably not really since 1990. Five, when I was looking in Washington, D.C., and, and I didn't know how to look for a job, right? So I had like the one-page cover letter that, you know, you can't actually say a lot and cover a lot of ground in one page. Yeah. And I didn't know that I was supposed to parrot their words back to them, you know, parrot the words in the, um, in the application or the posting back to them so that their computer flagged it. As like, oh, she's got this because she used our words. So I didn't get interviews for things because I didn't score because I didn't understand their algorithms. So I'll just say like, I, um, so I do a lot of volunteer stuff and, um, and I dove into volunteering to save, um, help save the LGBTQ community center, uh, which was in danger of closing. Yeah. And I volunteered because um, because I, I had the time, um, frankly. And, and also, I, I care. I'm on the board of, of Basic Rights Oregon, which is the statewide LGBTQ rights organization. And um, and it was great because, because I got my mojo back. It was like I had something unique to offer in this group. And I felt valued in a way that I hadn't for a long time. So I'm super grateful to that experience for that. But also, I mean, I made some really great friends out of it. And the Q Center, the LGBTQ Community Center is still here. It's thriving. It's the kind of place that when we were going through this, which was like weekly two-hour meetings that turned into four-hour meetings for six months, it's the, the place that I think we all hoped it would become. So... Um, but again, a really great experience for restoring my confidence in myself and and what I had to offer folks. I think that's really important, though, Jackie. Um, what has a tendency to happen to a lot of people is just what you described, where they're in a role that, for all intents and purposes, is kind of sucking the life out of them, right? Yeah. In one way or another, and it looks a little bit different for everybody. But you know, I was just having this conversation with. Uh, my wife last night, actually, because she's considering a transition from what some of the things that she's doing. She's been involved in a lot of different pieces. And one of those, she actually really loves what she's doing, but doesn't really love the situation around it. And it's sort of in the same way, sucking the life out of her. And in order to really make a successful transition, you kind of have to find ways in order to bring that mojo back as as you're putting it. And I think that 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 confidence that has a tendency to come back with that is really, really important. And it's one piece of the the process that a lot of people, I think, don't think about or don't realize. And you know, we, we see it all the time as we're working with people where we have to create a situation where they're bringing that back yeah. and then do the rest of the steps. 
Well, and, 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 you know, and that was my experience of starting to work with you guys. But before we get to that, um, I'll say, so in, um, in 2015, um, I did some consulting, I did some, um, like equity work, like kind of racial equity work within, um, within the environmental movement. Um, and really enjoyed that and, and felt like this really spoke to, um, it, it felt important and valuable. Yeah. Um, so did that. And then I also, um, got recruited to work on a climate change campaign, um, called Renew Oregon. And I got recruited to be the faith organizer because I'm a, a person of faith, but I loved doing that. Um, didn't pay well. Um, I was contracted for a certain number of hours. It felt meaningful and important. Um, that was also the summer that the Pope came out with his papal oh, yeah. um, on climate change, among other things. Um, so, you know, so I got to, um, I got to talk about the Pope a lot, you know, and obviously it was in the news. Um, but I just, it was like, it, it just felt great to, to be working on something that I really cared about and that, that, that drew on a lot of things that I had to offer, um, including my faith. And I was like, I, I just, I hadn't, I don't know that I'd ever felt that. Mm. And so it was great. And I thought I wanted to do nonprofit work. And in fact, I, I think it's really important. I serve on a lot of nonprofit boards. And I thought I wanted to be an executive director. And actually a friend, um, somebody I have a ton of respect for, yeah. um, said, hey, you know, you should think about this one. And, and I was completely flattered, like, that this person would think of me in connection to this role at this organization that they were working at at the time. So made it through the interview process. And then I was one of two finalists. But there was this long sort of lag between the last interview and when they made the offer, which kind of soured me on the experience. And I just, I remember joking with them that it sort of felt like junior high, like, I would totally date you. But I, you know, but I, I want to date this other person. <laughs> we all laughed about that. Yeah. And I'm not going to say the name of the organization, but it was an organization for which I'd volunteered in the early 2000s when I first arrived back in Portland. So, so um, even though I hadn't stayed connected to it, it, it was special and important. What I realized when I got in there was just how all consuming the job is. Being an executive director is 24 seven. I would dream about it. I would wake up in the middle of the night, like gasping about like something that I was stressed out about. I would think about it when I was gardening, you know, it just, it was hard to turn off. So then the other thing is that I did not love the job. And I think I realized pretty early on that I didn't love it. What, what didn't you love about it? Um, I didn't love that, um, that it, it's being an executive director is pretty lonely and isolating. Um, and I am somebody who likes working with a team. I like bouncing ideas off of other people. You're very collaborative. Like every conversation yeah. I've ever had with you, it, it feels more like a collaboration than it is a, uh, I don't know, anything else than a conversation necessarily. Yeah, thank you. So, and so, yeah, so I value collaboration and I, value like making decisions at the lowest level that makes sense. And so, you know, people would ask me for permission for things and I'm like, you can make this decision, you know, and not like, Hey, 
don't involve me. But it was like, no, actually, you can handle this. And I'm happy to be a sounding board. But ultimately, you're the subject matter expert. You get to make the decision. And I, and, and I felt um, that that wasn't valued. And in fact, I, there were some folks that I worked with who, um, who I felt like took advantage of that and, and, um, and were actually kind of manipulative in terms of like, I know more than you sort of made me or tried to make me feel like small and vulnerable. So it just didn't feel like a safe environment. Um, and I like challenges, but this was just a lot more than I wanted to deal with for something that I didn't love. I didn't feel valued and I didn't think that I could thrive in that environment. And that was reinforced by some feedback that I got that I, that gave me permission to say, I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here. And, and I still reflect on that idea of like needing permission to go as opposed to just deciding this isn't working and going. I left that job uh, almost a year to the day. And, and it's interesting. So I had actually interviewed for another executive director job at yeah. that time, the Bicycle Advocacy Organization. Um, and I was a finalist. And I heard that I was the choice of the staff. And I heard from a number of board members that they were really excited about me. But they, they went in a different direction, which is probably good for me because I really don't think I want to be an executive director again. Um, but I'm really passionate about active transportation. Um, and I had a lot of ideas for this organization, but anyway, so I was already like making plans for what would, um, come next and not as a, and not coming from a place of being anxious, but just as a, you know, there are these opportunities and I'd applied for another job doing equity and inclusion work, which is a passion of mine at central city concern, which works with people in recovery from substance abuse and, and alcohol abuse, great organization. Yeah. And so I, you know, there were things that were happening. And even though like I got right into that, I wasn't feeling anxious about it. And I also knew that I needed some time to decompress. After I was laid off in 2014, I realized how much even in Portland people identify with their work. Yes. And so people were like, what do you do? You know, and I'm like, oh, I'm a consultant. And I'm doing this training. And this time around, people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I don't. And I would say it like with a certain amount of glee. Um, and it was funny, <laughs> I think it was in November, a friend of mine said, you don't work for money. And I'm like, okay, I don't work for money. I'm actually, I actually have stayed very engaged um, with the different nonprofits that I'm part of. Yeah, I, I don't sit still well. And so it's not been like, oh, I have rested and relaxed. Um, I've definitely decompressed from the last job. Um, but I've been applying for things here and there, um, a number of government-based equity and inclusion jobs. Yeah. And you know, did an interview because I'd learned to play that game, right? Of like, I'm parroting your words back at you. Um, and in some cases, you know, I would get a second interview. And in some cases, I wouldn't, which didn't feel great. And then um, there was a job that that had a community engagement equity component to it, working for the Bureau of Emergency Management. Um, And I was actually really excited about that. And for folks not listening from Cascadia, um, the last major earthquake was over 300 years ago. And the schedule is every 300 years. And so we're kind of due and it's going to be bad. 
And so I care a lot about emergency preparedness. And here was an opportunity to work with communities of color around emergency preparedness. Yeah. Um, I was really excited about it. They were excited about me and they chose somebody else. And that's at the time, that's, that's when I first connected with Happen to Your Career. Because here was this job that I really wanted. And then, you know, and they were super lovely about, hey, we think you're great, but. Here's second place. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, in Portland, we have this thing called Max List. It comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Tuesdays when, you know, the job listings are. And usually I would go straight to the job listings. But on that day, I happened to read you know, what else is going on? And that's when they mentioned the webinar that you did the following day. Um, And I was like, okay, I'll sign up for this. I'll check it out. And I was in that headspace of not feeling confident. Like, why, why can't I close the deal? Like, don't you know what I have to offer? (laughs) Don't you understand me? (laughs) So starting to feel desperate and lacking confidence and starting to go down the path of the things that you folks talk about not doing, which is just like, oh my gosh, I need to not just look on Max List, but I need to look on Idealist and all these other places. You know, I, I need to apply more and I, I need to, yeah, I was, I was starting to feel that scramble. And I should say, like, I have financed this year of not working. And I'll say, like, people asked me if I was going to do consulting and I said no. I like working with other people. I like working in infrastructure with an organization that has some infrastructure. I didn't want to be hustling for work. I have borrowed money from myself to make this happen. And so I'm not looking forward to tax time next year, but I was fortunate in that I worked in the private sector for many years. I built up a very healthy retirement fund and I've got an amazing financial planner um, who has been taking care of me through my retirement resources for the last year. So let me ask you about that really quick, because I think that that is important. And you and I have had um, conversation already about this. So I I know some of the behind the scenes and everything, but why did you feel like that was the right decision for you? Because it's probably not the right decision for everybody necessarily, but why was that the right decision for you? So I, I guess I one I felt like I I had the wherewithal to do it that I could afford to do it. Yeah. When I was laid off in twenty at the end of twenty fourteen, I and I first started working with um, this financial planning group who've just taken great care of me. Uh, one of the questions I asked was, should I be saving for retirement this year that I'm not working? And they said if you didn't save any money for the rest of your working life, you would be fine. I mean, that was a huge relief to hear because even when I was working, um, there wasn't a lot of the way, a lot in the way of retirement benefits. And so I just, I felt like really confident that I was sitting on this comfortable nest egg of which I still need to be responsible. Yeah. So I've been making it work and it's been fun, like learning to ride the bus around again and like walking around and just noticing and being present. And it's also really changed my relationship with time because I have to think about how long it's going to take me to get somewhere. And so I'm actually not, I mean, there's still a certain amount of rushing, but there's also a certain amount of like waiting and reading and noticing. And I actually really like that. Um, And so I hope I don't, I can hold on to that even after I get back into being a car owner. 
not to go too far in in that direction, but I thought that was really interesting too because when we went and we lived in Paris for a month and we're using you know we're riding public transportation all around or when we were in London for um yeah, a period of time doing the exact same thing it was it was really really nice cuz i mean i live in Moses Lake Washington we don't have great public transportation we don't have uh, like if I want to go anywhere, then it's about five miles away and it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a hike. And yeah. I kind of actually loved that. I loved not having a car and not driving any place along those lines because I'd become yeah. used to it, but it really does to your point, change your relationship a bit with time in that way. Well, and also for me also changes my relationship with people, you know, because you get all kinds of people on the bus. And sometimes I'm on the bus late at night because I like to work at a brew pub, um, you know, less than a mile away from me. And so I'll hop on the 1102 bus and you get some really interesting people on the bus at 11 o'clock at night. And it's just made me in some ways more patient with people. Yeah. You know, like people have their own thing going on and I'm just, I'm not going to move my seat because of whatever. So the financial piece, I just, I felt like I had the wherewithal to do it. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful about that. Uh, the other thing I'll say is I'm not a penny pincher. Um, and I, you know, probably would be better off if I were in a lot of ways, but I didn't like change my standard of living a lot in the last year of yeah. not working. So again, I felt like, I can afford to do that. We'll see how I feel, like I said, next tax time when I'm paying, you know, taxes and penalties on this early withdrawal that I've been taking to fund my life. But, um, but yeah, and I just, I mean, it gave me the headspace to not just take anything and to certainly not take something I hated. And, and I guess the other thing too, was coming out of a space of just knowing how soul killing that could be. Yeah to be in a space of like, I'm just doing this because I need to, you know, and it's hard. It's hard to find like what you want to really be doing when all of your energy is being sucked away with just sort of going through the motions. So that's a really interesting take because essentially what you were doing for all intents and purposes was you were <laughs> financing your headspace and the regrowth of your soul, as you put yeah. it. Like, yeah. And I, I think when you're looking at it like that, that really changes how you're looking. It changes how I look at value. But I think that having talked to you then, because I, I got to have a pretty early on conversation yeah. with you after you found us, um, just as we were, I can't even remember totally how it happened, but you and I, I found, we found ourselves on the, on the phone and you were telling yeah. me a little bit about this and it really did sound like it was the right thing for you based on everything else that you just just shared with us like i don't think you would have gone down the same path in the same way had you not created that space for yourself yeah and you and i like the first after i signed up after i decided i wanted to do it i was supposed to have a coaching call with somebody else and then you hopped in and you're like is this okay i'm like yeah it's totally okay um and i really appreciated that first conversation and it really set a, a very positive tone for my interactions with all the happen to your career, career change bootcamp folks that, that, um, that you're real, you're warm, you're human. You listen amazingly well. Like I was talking to Caroline, she'd be like, Hey, so I heard you say that. 
And it was like listening sort of below, like behind for the message behind the words in ways that was almost spooky. So you and Caroline asked me, like, what did I need from you? And what I needed was a confidence boost because at that time my confidence was flagging. Um, and so going through, um, career change bootcamp and, you know, doing the different exercises, like the strengths thing, which I kind of got bogged down in that, but, but I loved the piece about, um, asking people, like when you have us reach out and ask people to comment on our strengths. Yeah. Um, and I reached out to a bunch of people and, and, you know, and I figured they'd have good things to say about me, but the consistency of those messages um, was great. What did that and, do for you? Just well, curious. Well, it also, again, made me feel like, hey, I actually have something to offer here. Um, and just like reconnected with that um, at a time when I'm like, nobody's hiring me. Um, so that was that piece. And I'd say the other thing that was really, really valuable was what you had us do in module one about creating a support network which, you know, I had one sort of informally. I mean, I have one, um, but the, form, the, the, the formality of it, the, this is what I'm doing. Would you be part of this? I almost didn't do that part. And I'm glad that I did. And what having that support team made me do was I checked in with them at least every week to week and a half and said, here's where I am. And, you know, some days it was, I'm excited about this interview and, hey, I'm really getting a lot out of this career change bootcamp. And some days it was like, oh my God, um, I didn't get a second interview. I'm super stressed. And, and it was really great to have these folks like offer encouragement and support. So whether you're participating in the career change bootcamp or not, to have that and to have more than one person as part of that and, and doing it in a, in a really... I don't want to say formulaic way, um, but a more formal way, um, I found incredibly helpful to me. So another thing that happened was um, in mid-March, so I started working with you in January. And in mid-March, um, I think I was working on two job applications. And the way that I apply for jobs, and they were government um, yeah. jobs, the way I apply for jobs is I do a ton of research. And, you know, go all over like this organization's website. I had a coaching call with Caroline and she said, don't apply for it. And I was like, okay. And I didn't apply and it felt great. I also stopped looking at Matt's list and I focused on the career change bootcamp and other things. And it just felt like this huge weight um, came off of my shoulders. And it was interesting. And like at first it was hard to not look right? Because we're so programmed to like, oh my gosh, this email like showed up in my inbox. It's got all these things. I should be looking for this. And so I made myself not look. And so there was a job that I'd applied for at the Oregon Food Bank um, that I was super excited about, did not get a second interview. So again, still not in the I'm, I'm not looking stage, um, but also still starting to have that going back to where I was in January of like, maybe I should be looking, maybe I should be like scanning all these lists because something's not happening. And in Portland and other cities as well, there's a group called, uh, it's a civic organization called the City Club of Portland. I was a member a long time ago, recently rejoined a friend of mine as the executive director. Uh, another good friend of mine was the chair of the board. Um, she just stepped yeah. off of that. The programming is really great. 
And so I was at the city club and it was the state of the city. So another good friend of mine, because Portland's small, two degrees of separation, was interviewing the mayor as the second part of a two-part state of the city. And at that thing, afterwards, I went up and was talking to people and saying hello to friends. I talked to the woman who will be my boss, who is um, the CEO of the Urban League of Portland. And we've known each other for years. We're you know, friendly. We hug each other when we see each other. And she asked me how I was doing at the job I used to hold. And I'm pretty sure that I told her that I'd left, but I, t- I reminded her that I had left. And she asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm not. Again, with that, like, you know, what do yeah. you do? I don't. And she said, why didn't you come work for me? I could use you. You should have come work for me. Come work for me. Why aren't you here already? Yeah. It was basically like that. And I was like, hey. And she said, we should talk. Um, and I said, well, I've applied for this other job. And she's like, don't go work for them. Come work for me. And so, you know, really flattered by that. I think she is amazing. Like um, ever since she, uh, she's originally an, uh, an Oregonian. Uh, so native Oregonians are a big deal as in, you know, most of us are not native. Um, so she's a native Oregonian, um, w- was working on the East Coast, working in politics, um, came back to Oregon a few years ago. And so I've, you know, followed her career. Um, her predecessor at the Urban League is a good friend of mine. Um, and every time I'd heard, her name is Nikenge Harmon Johnson, every time I'd heard her speak, I thought, wow, this woman is amazing. She says what's on her mind. She doesn't dance around. Uh, she holds people accountable. Um, she's a strong, strong woman, strong voice, and a really great and important voice for the African-American community. So just nothing but admiration for her. Um, so anyway, so there's the whole like come work for me thing. And about just as I was thinking, oh, I should follow up with her. So this was uh, 10 days after we had talked. And I think I was working on some other stuff. Um, she emailed me to say, Hey, you know, legislative session is coming up. Well, next year and, um, our state of black Oregon report, and we could really use you as the policy director come work for me. And it, and it was a little, it was more like elegantly stated than that, but that was the gist of it. Um, and I was like, wow. And felt good and excited about it. Um, I guess it was around that time that I also realized that I wasn't moving forward with a food bank and actually felt okay about that. Um, that job would have been a largely an HR job, which they were calling equity, people, and culture. And I definitely could have done it, but it's not like my sweet spot. And the, you know, the food bank is great. It does amazing and important work. But the thought of being in a public policy space, working on racial justice issues, for especially the African-American community just it just feels really resonant right now. The other thing is Nikenge and I follow each other on Twitter. And on Twitter, most of my tweets are pretty political. So you, you can get a good sense of what I care about and what I think about. And, and I'll just pause and say, before I started at the nonprofit, um, it was right around the time that... Um, a group of people occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, bird refuge in Eastern Oregon. I had a lot of feelings about that. And I was vocal about them on Facebook. And one of my friends, an old friend, 
set, wrote me a note and said that she was worried about me being able to find a job because I was so political. Um, and we're not friends anymore because that me um, being true to that is really important to me. And I'm fortunate in that I don't come from a family where it's awkward to have conversation. Like, like we care about the same things, right? So I don't have to worry about not making mom or dad bad or, you know, actually I do have one aunt who's, you know, um, <laughs> there's always um, that one aunt. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, and, and so it was just, it was like, you're telling me that I need to check myself in order to be palatable to other people. And I was like, F that. Um, That's exactly the wake up call that uh, could be needed, but in the opposite way. Yeah. And so the fact that like one of the ways that Nikenge knew me was through like how I engaged on Twitter, like that told her something about me. Um, and, and also I think through that and other avenues, like one of the things that she talked to me about was she's like, I need somebody who can help me hold people accountable, hold people in the community accountable for, for their commitments to the people we serve. And I love that. I, I, um, I can be tough. I can be fierce. I mean, I want to be collaborative, right. But I'm also just like, yeah we're not doing that. Or you said you were going to do this. I need you to do this. And so I'm really excited to be in a role that values that and where I will get to use that. So, um, so yeah. And it was one of these things where, um, there wasn't a formal interview process. Um, and it's interesting because another good friend of mine who was actually on the board of the food bank, um, asked me about the Urban League's process, and I started telling her, and she and her response was, "Well, that doesn't feel very equitable." And and I was like a guppy. I'm like, um, uh, and I and what I said was the equitable processes, and I think I told you this, Scott. The equitable processes that I'd participated in felt almost dehumanizing. Like we're making it so fair. Like we are scoring you. <laughs> we are not. We are not responding to you. Like, there's no affect in the room. It's right? going to be so equitable. We're going to take all the humanness out of it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was horrible, and I'm I'm trying to figure out how to give them that feedback. And and I think it's based on the false premise that we're going to strip relationship out of this, right? And I was talking to another friend, and I would say my my really good. Both of these women are white. Um, which feels important to say. And the second friend I was talking to said, you know, the Urban League's equity journey looks very different than the food bank's equity journey or most organizations' equity journey. Like they don't have to work as hard to hire um, folks of color as an organization that isn't that diverse and doesn't have that history. I was like, I wish I had those words um, when I was talking to my friend. Um, the other thing that, that comes to mind is um, I was at a, a friend's high school graduation a couple of weekends ago. Um, and this is a young friend who I met him when he was four years old, when his family arrived from the Democratic Republic of Congo as refugees. 
And my church was part of the group that sponsored them. And so I've, you know, I've known this kid for 14 years and he is amazing. He's going to Georgetown in the fall. So I went to his graduation and their keynote speaker was a graduate. I think she graduated four, four or five years ago. And, um, and she was giving advice to the graduating class. And I felt like she could have been giving advice to me, you know, someone a lot older than her. And one of the things she said was take advantages of opportunities that present themselves. So if the elevator door opens, get in. Don't feel like you have to go find a ladder and climb that ladder. Get in the elevator. And I was like, girl, that is what I needed to hear. Because I I feel like, like, you know, again, out of this idea of equity and fairness, like, oh, no, 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 we need to make this hard. We need to go this way to create these, you know, perceptions of fairness. Anyway, but it'll be interesting to see, like, once I'm in that role, um, how that's perceived internally as well as externally. Um, So I'm still uh, trying to figure out how to navigate that. But most people I've shared the story with are like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And you're going to be great. You know, I agree. As it turns out, let me ask you this, though, because here's here's what I, I know from our team being involved with your your journey is that this uh, this wasn't always easy and there was a lot going on behind the scenes and even though it felt like in the end if, if people were just looking at at the end result it felt like this happened very organically there was a lot that took place in between in order to actually get to here so i'm curious yeah. from your perspective now that you're looking back what do you feel like was the what do you feel like was the hardest part of going through that because it had you accepted or had you um, had anything, you know, occurred differently, had you not, uh, made the decision to not apply for some of these roles and not, not worry about some of all the minutia that was out there that probably wasn't a great fit for you, uh, then potentially you could have ended up accepting something completely different in a different place that might not have been as a great fit. So what do you, what do you feel like looking back uh, was some of the most difficult parts for you? Uh, sorry, the like most difficult about about like being part of the boot camp or just in general. No, on this process. I mean, I think it was it was the like not. Um, uh, I mean, you know, there were definitely times that felt anxious, right? There were definitely times that, again, like I would get excited about something. You know, it's like you fall in love with the possibility of a job. Um. And then, you know, you go into that interview and this is why you want me. Um, And so you talk yourself into something, even if there might be reservations about it. Um, And then to not have that. So there was, you know, questions about my own judgment. Um, And like, you know, what am I lacking? And, And I'm, you know, talking to friends who are also looking and, you know, not being hired for things. And that feels like a common thread. Um, and so trying to, trying to like weather that, you know, and it, and again, it might support system help. Caroline helped, um, and you know, like kind of staying connected to happen to your career help. Like, um, I would listen to the podcast and I would just kind of like take a deep breath and be like, oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, cause it, it can feel overwhelming, 
and kind of lonely, you know, and, and then to hear about other people's experiences and be like, oh, that's right. That's right. This is what this feels like. And, and there's an other side, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, so I, I think that emotional roller coaster felt very hard. And also, um, and I kept having to remind myself to find something that I really wanted to do and not just something that I could do. And Caroline kept like parroting that back to me. As in like, well, you said this, so, you know, remember this because there were definitely times when I'm like, well, I could do that. Um, and, you know, and I think about, about the different government jobs that I had applied for and, um, and, you know, easy to say on this side of it when I didn't get it and I've gotten something else, but I don't know that I'd be a, a good bureaucrat. I don't, I don't know that I would function well in that system. And I, you know, I worked for a very large bureaucratic organization for a very long time and was successful most of that time. So I can navigate that, but I think I'm done. <laughs> um, you know, now you don't I, want I, to in the same way. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of done like toning it down for somebody else. Um, and, and, you know, having to navigate like big systems and silos and stuff. And, and I'd say, every organization has their idiosyncrasies and their dysfunctions. And so I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not expecting everything at the urban league to be like amazing. Um, but hopefully a lot more nimble. And, and I feel like I'm going to get a lot of, have a lot of space um, to be myself, to bring like my best whole self um, and, and my connections built up over 18 years of living in gosh, 19 years of living in this community, um, in the service of this work and that it's, it's work that I really care about. I feel like it's work that needs to be done and I'm excited that I get to do it. Um, so yeah, so I, um, and one of the things that I feel like, uh, you guys do really well is to, is to keep us focused on what's right for us. And the way that I've described it to friends to whom I've recommended um, happen to your career is a lot of times applying for a job is, is here's the square, here's, here's a round hole, you're a square peg. So let's get out the sandpaper. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I feel like your next tweet should be what you, what you said earlier that I, I, I'm completely done toning myself down for everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. And so I feel like, you know, happen to your career is all about like, what fits you? Um, what do you need? What do you want? Uh, and I loved, I loved that piece of it because a lot of times I feel like what we want, like that we're being, um, we're asking for too much to say, I want this. Um, and you guys are like, no, that's actually really important. And so can you find that thing that you want? Because if you don't, then you might be in a place of like, it's, it's a slog again. Um, so it was helpful to have that, that sort of, uh, I guess, North star of what do I want? And I should say, um, this was, I mean, I definitely, you know, crawled all over the Urban League website. I read their State of Black Oregon report. Um, 
uh, talked to my friend who was the previous CEO, but I, I didn't, I haven't researched it the way that I did the other ones. And so a part of this feels like a leap of faith. Um, but again, I have a ton of respect for the Urban League CEO. I'm excited that I get to work with her and I'm excited that she sees things in me um, based on having known me for years and observed me for years that, that can benefit the organization. So again, I feel like I get to be who I am um, to bring like hopefully my best whole self to this work um, in service of an important social justice effort. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that. That is amazing. And uh, congratulations, by the way. Yeah, thanks. And you know, one of the thoughts that runs through my mind as to hear you say all this and talking through the entire thing here and now is it almost feels like in some way that you going to such great lengths to do so much research. And I would never discourage people from you know preparing or I would never discourage people from um from you know just going in with no no prep no research not understanding whether something's likely to be a fit necessarily but it almost feels like a lot of those cases uh, the more that you'd go into it the more that you'd find ways to justify that this could be a fit for me mm-hmm. and I I almost feel like afterwards you know having seen you full circle that um I think it is less of a leap of faith. Regardless of how it feels, like outside looking in, it seems like it is actually less of a leap of faith based on all of the really important things are very, very aligned. Yeah. And you didn't have to like go find those things on a website someplace so that it uh, was said so that you could say them back to them or whatever else. Right. 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 And I think that that in itself is real. That is the important thing. Yeah. So nicely done. Because that's not that's not easy. (laughs) Like, thank you. And, you know, though, it's. um you know, I think about, and I don't necessarily want to say serendipity, um, you know, but I think about like having gone to that city club and, you know, not surprising that both of us would be at the mayor's like state of the city um, address. But one of the things that like the coaching that I've offered to other people is about, about being present. Um, and, uh, you know, about, I don't, I don't like to, I mean, I don't like the word networking because, because I think it implies like something that's transactional. Um, and over the years, like I have built a lot of relationships across a lot of different like sectors and issues. And, um, it's funny at my, I, at my 50th birthday party last year, I invited a ton of friends over. Um, and one of my friends, um, whom I knew from Cascade AIDS Project, where they used to work and I was on the board, um, and they're a person of color, they said, wow, this crowd like is truly intersectional. I had church friends, and I had LGBTQ friends, and I had um, you know friends from the different nonprofits. I had friends from like my biking circle. Um, and, yeah, and it was just a really interesting, fun mix of people. And so, um, so I've developed a lot of relationships and friendships over the years, um, that, and it's not, it's not coming from a transactional space, but it feels like it has served me well. 
in getting to this point. And, and I, and I say this as someone who is an introvert, um, but introvert means I'd rather talk to someone one-on-one or in small groups than, you know, to be like interacting with a large group of people. So for example, at my birthday party, I didn't actually want to talk to anybody. I wanted them to talk to each other and then I would talk to each of them for like two minutes at a time. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, I, you know, like I, I put myself out there. I talked to people. I got to know people. I, I think Nikenge also talked to, she talked to our, like her predecessor about me. I imagine she talked to other people about me. Um, and yeah. And I, I feel like that, that played an important role here. And so I've tried to encourage people to find settings like the city club that feel comfortable, that aren't just about I'm looking for a job, but Hey, we have these shared interests. What did you think about that panel? You know, and not just like, I'm looking for a job and you work there. And can we talk about, although, you know, that works too, but that feels different. It does feel different. And I think the different feeling is a big part of it. Yeah. well, I've got one more big question for yeah. you. No pressure or anything, but yeah. you know, you've gone through this entire entire change. It's been quite a journey over the last uh, last year, and there's been so many elements of it that we've just talked through. What what advice would you give to people who are kind of on the beginning of that, where they have realized that, hey, I'm I'm in the equivalent role where I, I know that I don't want to do this anymore. And I am thinking about making this change and they're right on the precipice. What, what advice would you give them when they're back there? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I see, I occasionally read folks comments in the, in the, the Facebook group, the career change Facebook group. And I realize people are in lots of different spaces and, and have, you know, different situations. Right. Um, and, and I would say get out of a situation before it crushes you. Um, and that's really strong language, but I think about the situation I was in before I was laid off where I felt like I couldn't hold my head up, um, in terms of like how I talked about the work that I was doing and, Um, and I wasn't excited about the work that I was doing, excited about like the kinds of contributions that I made, which doesn't make for a great, like, Hey, you want to interview me for this job? I just, I felt low energy around that. And so I'd say it's really hard. I mean, certainly for me, it was hard to be in that headspace to think about what I wanted to do next. Um, and I guess it also goes back to confidence. And so I'd say if you can like get out of a situation before your confidence is gone and before you feel desperate about, about finding that next thing. Um, so that's number one. Um, and, you know, and I think about, like I mentioned earlier, the climate change campaign that I worked on and it was just it it was it was like wow this is what this feels like when you believe in and love what you're doing and i'll say i mean i you know worked for a large corporation for 16 years um and i believed in what i was doing most of the time that i was there um 
and, you know, believed in a lot of what the organization was doing. Um, but, but kind of body and soul weren't kind of integrated. And so when I had that experience of working on the climate change campaign, it was like, wow, that's what that feels like. Um, and it's hard to go back after that. And I think um, it was probably in the back of my mind when I was working, when I was running a nonprofit, but it was really clear early on that I did not love that job. Um, and, and so, you know, and I get it. Like there are some people who a job provides them the resources to do the rest of their life and to do things that they love. And they don't, that's not, that's not where they want to put their energy. I get it. Um, my sense though, is people who are listening to happen to your career podcast, um, and going through the career change bootcamp, aren't those people that they're looking for meaning in work. Um, and so I, I think, um, to, to hold out for a place where that meaning feels like it's there. And then the other thing too, is I've definitely been in situations and I felt like this about the sustainability job is I'm going to make it meaningful. Um, and I couldn't, it was certainly meaningful to me, but I struggled to make it meaningful for the organization. And I, I wish I had realized that earlier and had decided to move on earlier. Um, when I still felt like, you know, I could hold, I was, my, my head was, I was holding my head high. Most of our episodes on happy to your career often showcase stories of people that have identified and found and taken the steps to get to work that they are absolutely enamored with that matches their strengths and is really what they want in their lives. And if that's something that you're ready to begin taking steps towards, that is awesome. You can actually get on the phone with us and, and our team, and we can have a conversation to find the very best way that we can help. It's super informal, and we try to understand what your goals are, where you want to go, and what specifically you need our help with. And then we figure out the very best type of help for you, whatever that looks like, and sometimes even customize that type of help. And then we make it happen. A really easy way to schedule a conversation with our team is just go to scheduleaconversation.com. That's scheduleaconversation.com and find a time that works best for you. We'll ask you a few questions uh, as well, and uh, then we'll get you on the phone and figure out how we can get you going to work that you really want to be doing, that fits your strengths, that you love and you're enamored with. Hey, can't wait to hear from you. You've probably heard that you need to say no to more things. We've all heard about drawing boundaries, and then if we're too busy, well, guess what? It's just our own fault. All we need to do is say yes to less things, which sounds easy in theory, and it's nice to write down, and it's great to read about on a blog post. However, it's much harder to do in practice, in reality. All of a sudden, as COVID hit, the you know, like a quarter of the Earth's population almost literally overnight has been asked to live something like involuntary essentialism. Uh, you know, not unkindly, we were told, go to your room and don't come out again until you've had a good think about it. 
uh, like so this uh, global teenager, we went and have had to think. And I think there's not almost not anybody who hasn't asked whether they said it in exactly these words or not, but the spirit of it is, well, what's essential now? All the things I could focus on, what should I focus on? All these things I no longer control, which things even matter? That's Greg McEwen. He's a huge advocate for pursuing less. What he refers to as essentialism. His writing has appeared in places like New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune, Huffington Post, Inc. Magazine, lots of other places. And he's among the most popular bloggers in places like the Harvard Business Review and LinkedIn Influencers Group, averaging over a million views a month. Oh, also, he's the author of Essentialism, which I read a while back and thought, hey, I have to get Greg on the podcast. So many months later, he's here to discuss the disciplined pursuit of less and where the idea of essentialism actually began. All that and plenty more next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out.